0: Hello, this is Julia Chopik for Keeper.com. Our guest today is Canadian environmental writer Liz Armstrong, who has just co-authored a very exciting new book titled Cancer, 101 Solutions to a Preventable Epidemic, which we'll talk about today. Liz was born in Toronto, Canada in 1947. She first became aware of health and environment issues during the massive DDT spraying of cities when her family's Toronto backyard was saturated many times by airplanes in the late 1950s. This mass spraying caused her to witness firsthand the death of many fish and insects. She thus became a very early and ardent fan of Rachel Carson's controversial 1962 book, Silent Spring. Liz began her working life in the early 1970s as an eighth grade teacher in a large Toronto inner city school. She left teaching a few years later to become a writer photographer with a weekly newspaper. After that, she moved through several writing and public relations jobs before becoming a freelance writer in the early to mid 1980s. Liz turned her energy to environmental issues after moving to a rural Ontario community west of Toronto and hearing a series of documentary radio programs in the late 1980s called It's a Matter of Survival, produced and hosted by Canada's best-known environmentalist, Dr. David Suzuki. Her other major impetus was attending and reporting in 1990 for the University of Toronto's community radio station on a conference called Women and the Environment, charting a new environmental course. It was there that Liz heard several exciting environmental activists speak, including British activist Bernadette Villelli, who talked about her new book, The Sanitary Protection Scandal, which discussed the power of women to harness their massive consumer clout in order to change women's choice of menstrual products. It was on Bernadette's urging that Liz was convinced to write her first book, Whitewash, published in 1992 in collaboration with environmental lawyer Adrian Scott. Liz became interested and active in cancer and environmental issues following a meeting in Texas in 1994 with many American breast cancer activists, including Judy Brady, editor of One in Three Women with Cancer Confront an Epidemic, Dr. Sandra Steingraber author of Living Downstream and Having Faith, and Dr. Deborah Lee Davis, author of When Smoke Ran Like Water, and the soon-to-be-released Secret History of the War on Cancer. Liz is on the board of directors of Prevent Cancer Now, a co-founder of the Women's Healthy Environment Network, WHEN, and the Breast Cancer Prevention Coalition, now the sanders Mathy Cancer Prevention Coalition. She is also co-author with Guy Dauncey and Anne Wordsworth of the 2007 book, Cancer 101 Solutions to a Preventable Epidemic, which we will be discussing today.
1: Liz, how are you today? Oh, I'm just great. Uh, thanks, Julia. I'm really glad to be on the program.
0: Well, we're definitely, definitely glad to have you. As you know, I first learned about you when I started working with The Keeper, Inc., the manufacturer of the reusable menstrual cup, The Keeper. In the process of educating me about the reasons women should use reusable products rather than disposables, the president of the company gave me a few books to read, the best, she said, was whitewash, and before we talk about it, I just want to let our listeners know that whitewash has a hugely loyal following even today. I don't know if you know that, Liz, but it does.
1: Oh, that's great. Can you tell us about it? Well, it's uh, interesting. When we took our message out about uh, reusable menstrual products and the whole issue of sanitary products or menstrual products and the environment, there were some audiences that were really resistant to the message, you know, probably people in my own age group at the time, which was sort of in their mid-40s. But there were other groups that were really, really taken by the message, and that included many, many college and university student groups. And even to this day, there are groups at some Canadian universities that have what were called then and are still called Stop the Whitewash campaigns. So I don't know exactly what form they take these days, but it's really great to run across them every now and then. But in the book, you also told
0: about some real successes that women can have and have had in stopping what they consider, what we consider to be dangerous practices.
1: Isn't that true? Yes, definitely. And and I think that part of the, the key is not only... Speaking up and speaking out, but using that consumer clout that we talk about, because women have this massive power that not many of us realize we even have. Women control really over about 80 to 85% of the, all the consumer product choices and purchases, and that is enormous. Even though we don't make a lot of the money <laughs> compared to men, True. We, we control the consumer choices, and that
0: is huge and that's very important for all of the women listening to realize. In addition, I believe you told in that book about a success with having bleach not be used in disposable tampons or disposable menstrual products.
1: Well, certainly in Great Britain, they had a terrific campaign based on the book The Sanitary Protection Scandal, which you talked about in your introduction, and because... Great Britain is a much less differentiated market than the North American market. It was possible for women there to really focus on getting the chlorine bleach out of sanitary products and to influence the market to introduce chlorine-free products and certainly then dioxin-free products, which also followed in North America to some extent. There's a company with disposable products called NatraCare here in Canada, that introduced a chlorine-free sanitary pad, for example. And it's still going strong. I see them in health food stores stores here. I'm not sure if they're marketed in the States. I have definitely seen them. I believe they are, and
0: I will check it out today when I go to Whole Foods, but I am almost positive that they're sold here.
1: Yeah, and I wouldn't be surprised. They made a really big effort to get that product on the market and to appeal through the niche market the health food stores, the whole food stores, et cetera. And so I think they grew along with that whole organic food movement.
0: Yes. And that
1: book, Whitewash, by the way, it is still available
0: on Amazon.com. Really? For people who want to get it. Yes.
1: (laughs) I'm surprised about that because we were told quite a long time ago that there were some remainders. Maybe that's what's available. I'd say snap them up if you want one.
0: (laughs) Yes. And it is a really wonderful book. Oh, thanks. So as is your next book. But the first one, whitewash, dealt with mainly, I believe, environmental issues connected with these products.
1: There were some references, of course, to health issues as well. Toxic shock syndrome was probably one of the biggest at the time. And there were questions about exposing ourselves and using regular chlorine bleach tampons to things like dioxin and what kind of health effect that might have. But certainly the toxic shock syndrome issue was a big one at the time and and addressed in the book. And guess what? The toxic shock, I don't know if it's
0: still a big issue, but Toxic shock syndrome is still alive and well, and women are still getting Mm. toxic shock syndrome for various reasons, various causes, top among them disposable products. Yes. And I should mention here that Carolyn Maloney, a congressperson from New York, is still trying to get her bill passed called, I believe, the Robin Daniels Act, which would just make sure that there's independent testing because I'm sure you know the testing is done by the companies that produce the
1: product. That's pretty common.
0: I'd like to go now to your new book, Cancer 101 Solutions to a Preventable Epidemic. And before I ask you any questions, I'd like to compliment you on making a really complex subject, very, I don't want to say simple, but definitely really readable and digestible,
1: because you've set it up. Do you want to tell
0: a little bit about how you've set it
1: up? Yes, I'd love to, because I first of all, I can't take any credit for it, <laughs> so I, I'll talk very happily about that. And it's set up in sort of two sections. Uh, the first section introduces the problems associated with cancer, cancer in the environment, the increase in cancers over time, some of the environmental reasons. We talk about big issues like smoking and secondhand smoke and chemicals like pesticides, et cetera. And the second part of the book is the 101 solutions to the epidemic. And it's divided into many sections, the solutions for individuals, for families, for youth, for labor unions, for businesses, cities, other levels of government, international solutions, etc, solutions for activists. And the way it's set up is based on a formula that my co-author, Guy Doncy introduced when he created a book back in 2001 called Stormy Weather, 101 Solutions to Global Climate Change. I was very impressed when I saw that book. It's a formula that I think really works, especially for people who tend to be daunted by big issues like this. And it's basically every subject or subheading in the book or chapter is simply a two-page spread. And so what you will find, for example, is you'll find a section in the introductory part on hormone disruptors. It's called gender benders. And so in two pages, we reduce what's actually a pretty daunting issue from environmental estrogens, et cetera, to two pages that kind of touch the high points, give people an idea of what the extent of the problem is, and sort of set up a whole opportunity through the naming of websites, et cetera, for people to, if they wish to carry on and find out a lot more about the subject, they can do it very easily. And in the second part of the book, we look at things like hormone disruptors in various segments of the book. In the Solutions for Cities, for example, we talk about pesticide bylaws that cities can adopt that prevent the use on private and public property of pesticides for cosmetic use, for lawns and gardens especially. And talk again about many of them are hormone disruptors. So there's certainly a connection between what occurs in the first part of the book and the solutions in the second. You
0: did mention something that I find so helpful. Because you have it in the two page, what I call snippets almost, and you also put websites URLs in practically each of those little two-page snippets, and it makes it so that if somebody is really interested in a certain subject, they can just kind of digest it and go onto the websites and learn a whole lot.
1: We also mentioned key books. I think, for example, it was probably one of the hardest writing exercises that I ever did. And I'll tell you why the formula doesn't allow for more than 820 words per section. So you've got to really clip Yeah, and you really have to condense, and I think it was probably Mr. Wordsworth said once, I would have written you a short letter, but I didn't have time. It's easy to to go on and on about subjects, especially major subjects like, for example, in our book, Nuclear Radiation. You could write a whole book. Each chapter, in fact, could have been a book. So it was a matter of, and sometimes despairingly, trying to pare it down into digestible sizes of information so that people wouldn't feel daunted, but at the same time not oversimplify it. And yes, refer people to websites and other resources that would be helpful. For example, the whole issue of diet and cancer. It's almost ridiculous to think of it as a two-page spread in a book. So we've named other books that are pretty, have achieved a level of credibility that's just unsurpassable, and we've cited those and said, you want to know more about how a good diet can help prevent cancer, go to these resources, including this and that book.
0: It is absolutely wonderful the the way you do that. And it seems that from your book and from other books that I've read and articles, that products of almost every kind imaginable, including clothing, cosmetics, plastic bottles, water, everything contains chemicals that are carcinogenic, has this always been the case, or is what's going on here?
1: Well, it sounds like that it has always been the case, and it sounds really daunting. There's a fear that we had, even as writers, that people already react with some kind of throwing up their hands and saying, what's the point? What's the point of even trying to do something about this? Everything causes cancer. And, of course, that's not true. <laughs> there are products we consider to be dangerous in the sense that they do contain other chemicals or radioactive materials that we should be very careful about and avoid completely if possible. And I guess the really good part, however, is that almost in every case alternatives exist, sustainable, green, clean products exist to replace the toxic chemicals that are in so many products today. And as you asked in your question, did this always exist? Uh, no, of course it didn't. It was really in the Second World War and the post-war era that the chemical revolution actually <laughs> began with a vengeance. And if you lived through that era, you know that some of the slogans were like, better living through chemistry. Exactly. <laughs> I remember, I remember a, that. Yeah. <laughs> and as a kid in our family, there was sort of this worship of Technology and science during the 50s and 60s. I remember sitting down. We had a food supplement at that time that they called neochemical food. Oh my God! You know, and the, the very idea of it today. I mean, it would be maybe the same product but it would be marketed under a completely different name like it would be long life or whatever but those were the days when there was so much faith put in science and it was a faith that really wasn't justified because there was a big profit motive that underlay it all and there were a lot of products that were created in those years that we're exposed to still and they're causing cancer now it's hard not to believe they aren't of course they are and i think that that whole and again you mentioned in your introduction that my first exposure to the whole idea of chemicals misused was in the big spring the ddt the DDT spray back in the 50s and it wasn't just cities of course it was it was everywhere it was on agricultural crops it was on forests it was on airplanes and ships <laughs> you name it, they sprayed it. You name it, they sprayed it. I love that.
0: That's kind of alliterative almost.
1: Yeah. Well, I don't know if you recall those times or where you were living, Julia, but in cities it was very widespread and it was treated very lightly. They'd have these big fogging machines that would also follow trucks and kids would run in and out of the spray, and there were some very good old videotapes of, and film of kids sitting at picnic tables, for example, eating their sandwiches oh my and God. being sprayed with oh. great big... And they used to call them like fogging machines, and they were. They were big, big heavy clouds of the stuff, and it had a very distinctive smell. I remember it quite well. God, I do too. <laughs>
0: but the thing it is that I find so amazing is that even though there has been evidence that a lot of these chemicals can cause cancer, and we'll get in a little while to some exciting new studies. I find it amazing how a lot of the studies come out with the results that say, no, this is not the case. And, for instance, wasn't there a study that talked about how most of a famous study, I believe it was by Dahl and Peto, is that correct, that talked about how, oh no, most cancers were not caused by environmental causes, occupational causes.
1: Yeah, that Dahl and Peto study was not so much a study but a meta-analysis of research to date, back in the early 1980s. And it's worth uh, talking about it a little bit. What had happened in the post-Rachel Carson era, after that amazing book, Silent Spring, came out in 1962, your president, John F. Kennedy, at that time, actually appointed the Science Advisory Committee to look into the widespread use of pesticides etc. Plus, they were also looking at the effects of nuclear fallout. And in fact, if you, and I'd urge everybody, if they haven't already read Silent Spring to read it, it's still a really an important book. It's a classic. Oh, absolutely. And, it, and Rachel Carson addressed the issues of radiation. And, of course, all of these huge new class of pesticides that they were using so liberally everywhere. But in the wake of Silent Spring and Rachel Carson, of course, a whole wave of environmentalism began to occur, you know, with the Earth Day in 1970. But through the 70s, there was a real push to have chemicals Regulated as far as workplace exposures, and it was even President Richard Nixon, who we tend to malign, you know was responsible for a lot of really interesting environmental legislation, really the Congress was at that point and but he also declared the war on cancer back in one thousand nine hundred and seventy one and so what happened through the '70s and certainly into jimmy carter 's era was that people were looking really carefully at the regulation of a lot of these very toxic especially occupational chemicals but others as well and people were declaring that probably between 20 and 40% of all cancers were caused by workplace exposures and then what happened was in the when Jimmy Carter was defeated and Ronald Reagan came to power in the early 80s of course deregulation occurred right across the board and there was a real interest by the cancer establishment and others to sort of dismiss this whole idea that cancer was caused by carcinogens (laughs) in the workplace and in the environment. So they hired these two British scientists. They both were knighted later, Sir Richard Dahl and Sir Richard Peto, to do this analysis, uh, and it was about the causes of cancer in the United States. And so what they did was they gathered all this information, and they basically concluded that they kind of in a very fairly simple way said most cancers were caused by two things really, smoking and diet, and that accounted for well over 50% of all cancers. So blaming the victim? Well, essentially yes. And how is it possible that given the 100 or 150,000 chemicals that are in our environment that are man-made, how is it possible to really do an analysis? Of that. But what they did conclude was a very small percentage of cancers were related to occupation. I think it was around 5%, they said. And similarly, an even tinier amount related to carcinogens in the environment. But this study, published in 1981, became almost like Gospel. It ended up, and it's still in, in university epidemiological text, and it was adopted wholesale by the mainstream cancer agencies like the American Cancer Society and the Canadian Cancer Society and the National Cancer Institute. So whenever people tried to say, look, there's new knowledge, there's much more information about cancer and causation, they, people would be cited as if it were biblical the Doll and Pedo report. And as our book tries to point out, there were several several major flaws to that Doll and Pedo report, including one that we all know that cancer has a latency period from the time of exposure, say, for example, to asbestos and the onset of cancer that's caused by asbestos called mesothelioma, which is a lung cancer. It can be 20, 30, 40, 40 years. And Dahl and Peto never looked at workers who were over 65. So so people working in that industry for decades may not contract cancer till their late 60s and then die of it, but they wouldn't be captured in any of this information by that was collected by Dahl and Peto. And that was just one major flaw. They didn't look at African Americans. There were serious shortcomings, and yet... The establishments wanted to see these kinds of results, and they embraced them without very much critical look uh, a critical look at them
0: point What do you think of the fact that so many of these studies are funded by people who have an agenda
1: oh, companies sure. who have an agenda yeah and it's a sad fact of life that there's very, very little science in the public interest that's left. There are some wonderful scientists who are doing great work, and it should be out of the public purse. It's not simply that the science is being done by industry uh, and being influenced by industry. It's It's being skewed by industry very badly. And some of the results, of course, have been misrepresented deliberately. There's so many examples of that.
0: I know. It's really, really sad. I mean, for instance, with a lot of studies that are done by pharmaceutical companies, I understand that the researchers aren't even encouraged or even allowed to see the raw data. They're just supposed to write based on what the company wants them to write, and that's called a study.
1: Even worse, however, is that credible people are hired to put a really good shine on some very bad information. That happens repeatedly and over and over again. And so I think that our book calls for, and certainly most people who have kind of the public interest in mind, call for a return to publicly funded research that isn't tainted by bias.
0: Oh, wouldn't that be wonderful? Well,
1: it would be a great start. I guess the other thing though about research is let's not get hung up on calling for more and more research. We've had the experiment. We know that exposures since the Second World War have increased the incidence of many cancers over time. Look at the hormone-mediated cancers like breast cancer prostate cancer, testicular cancer in young men. And you'll see that the curve just keeps rising. It's ridiculous that we need more research to tell us that we should stop releasing into the general environment, into our air, water, and food, pesticides and other chemicals that are estrogenic. Could you know, this
0: just be a stalling mechanism? Oh, sure the it is. Of
1: course it is, and it always <laughs> is. The call for more research, it, it, you have to ask who's calling for it. Even people on, quote, our side of the fence would say that we shouldn't stop doing research. Dr. Deborah Davis at the University of Pittsburgh, who oh, wrote
0: fabulous. that. she's
1: fabulous. Yeah, she wrote that great book called when smoke ran like water and it's really a book that i highly recommend to people and she's got another one coming out which you mentioned in in your introduction this fall called the secret history of the war on cancer which will have a bunch of bombshells in it people don't can't tell
0: about any of these bombshells
1: well i don't know them except to say that she does dissect the whole Doll and Peto thing. I mean, it turned out that Sir Richard Dahl was paid repeatedly. Even though he claimed that he was clean, he was paid by the American Chemical Institute and Monsanto and others. He was accepting money while he was meanwhile declaring some of the products that he was supposed to be having a close and unbiased look at to be safe. And was he knighted
0: before or after this Uh, came
1: out? I'm not exactly sure. Probably (laughs) before because
0: uh, back
1: in the 1950s, I mean, he was a very important figure. He was one of the first people to draw the links between smoking and lung cancer, which appears so obvious to us now, but back in the 50s, you had the tobacco companies hiring doctors to tell people that smoking was just fine. And I grew up next to a doctor in Toronto who smoked a whole lot, and most people thought very little of it at the time.
0: Yeah, my father was a doctor who smoked a lot. Oh, for sure. It was rampant.
1: It was, Yes. So I, I guess Richard Dahl, aside he did owe him a debt, because he did do a lot of really great work back in the 50s and 60s, but this whole business about the causation of cancer, I think. I tend to soft-pedal a little bit, but our other co-author, Anne Wordsworth, uh, on the book, along with Guy Daunce, Anne is not kind at all to Richard Dahl and Richard Peto. She actually says they've got blood on their hands. They underestimated the occupational causes of cancer, and thereby gave industry and government sort of the "quote-unquote" uh, proof necessary to not regulate toxic chemicals, and and therefore cause death. I
0: would agree with. Yeah, her, I agree that, with
1: her too. That there's I mean,
0: blood on their hands. Yeah. And also, the fact that they were paid, or one of them was paid, by chemical companies does not surprise me at all. No. It
1: it was interesting, though. It wasn't until Richard Dahl, I think, died in 2005. And it wasn't until last year that the real truth was found. So uh, even up until the time that he died, he was considered to be this prince of science, and very clean and unbiased. But, boy, the... Poop sure hit the fan when they started to uncover these links. You know what I think I'll do? After
0: this interview, I will do a little research to see how the Doll and Pito study is viewed today. And then if you would like, I will send you the research and we can write a paragraph. I'll be doing a show notes for Keeper.com's website. which oh, basically I think that's a really great idea. Yeah because I want it to be something that maybe won't be in the interview mm. that we can put on the site, sure. Incu- including, by the way, links to Deborah Davis and, and al- e- almost everything that we're talking about here. Great. I would also like to talk a little bit about how healthcare, so care, so-called companies that are supposed to be concerned about our health, are actually adding carcinogens. I mean, I guess I'm not that surprised when a chemical company does it, but I think we really should be shocked when pharmaceutical companies do it and when other companies do it. For instance, there was a quote from Healthcare Without Harm. Isn't that another one of the organizations you like and that's mentioned in the book?
1: Oh, it's a great—it's a great organization. It's taken on the whole healthcare industry and the toxicity of it, and it's been taken on by doctors and, and healthcare professionals themselves, largely. Isn't
0: that wonderful? They finally wonderful?
1: looked at their own profession and their own institutions and said, "Hey, hospitals are supposed to be places where people get well and get better, not where we make them sicker."
0: And I—I I had always thought of it from the point of view of things like hospital food, but I looked on <laughs> the Healthcare Without Harm website and they recently sent out a press release requesting the labeling of medical devices containing the toxic chemical and I won't even try to pronounce it but it's DEHP. Yes. And the release pointed out that I'm not going to be able to pronounce it phthalates in these products leach out of vinyl plastic medical devices into guess who? Patients. Uh, yes posing risks to developing, and I'm like, oh, my God.
1: This is a really interesting story, and I would encourage everybody to look at the history of that whole issue. And I'll tell you how it occurred. There are two great scientists at Tufts University. There's one named Anna Soto and her associate, Dr. Carlos Sonenshin, and they do breast cancer research, so they have a line of breast cancer cells that they work with that they'll add estrogens to. Right, and they'll do comparative studies, et cetera, et cetera. And they operate like they need to, an absolutely pristine lab at Tufts. And they went home one weekend, and when they came back on Monday, they found that these breast cancer cells were proliferating, for no reason. They hadn't added anything to the petri dishes or whatever. And the cells were running rampant in growth. And so they thought, well, what is happening here? Is it subterfuge? Is somebody come in and done something? Is it petri dishes and other equipment? Is it contaminated? They actually tore apart their entire laboratory. And over the course of several months, tried to find out, much to their terrible chagrin, because they operated, as I say, an absolutely top-notch lab. Anyway, what they ultimately found was that the supplier of their plastic tubing had substituted a product that actually leached, what you're talking about, phthalates, into their petri dishes. And that was the cause of the proliferation of the breast cancer cells. Oh, my God. Anyway, but, I mean, the story really gets more, even more horrific. Once Ana Soto and Carlos discovered this, they began to study it, and they went back to the supplier who basically didn't take responsibility for it. But they also wrote off, I believe, to the FDA and said, this is a serious problem, this is happening, and da-da-da, and they never got a response. Do you letter. feel that the common complaint about the
0: FDA, that they are too much linked with these companies is the culprit?
1: Well, I mean, if you look at this particular situation, they should have been just as alarmed as Soto and Sonichin about product that's used in a very intimate way, as in blood bags and intravenous lines, etc., that it's leaching a chemical that is known to be uh, estrogenic, that's pretty shocking. It is pretty shocking. And so I really wouldn't want to comment, uh, comment too much on your mm-hmm. FDA, but I would say that almost all of these agencies, certainly Health Canada has been compromised terribly by reduction in funding by, by our government and yeah. also a dependent on data that comes directly from the companies they're supposed to be carefully scrutinizing. And the whole revolving door of people going from Health Canada to the FDA to some of these major corporations, that doesn't help public the public no. health aspect of it. You know, who are the clients? We've had this big discussion in Canada over time. And the clients should be us of public health agencies. And the clients more and more are the corporations that create the products that may be helping us but also in so many cases have been shown to be endangering us. So what kinds of things can we do? Well, I think the, I guess the really the most important things to do are, one is simple, is to use our consumer to buy products that are probably simple. Simple products that aren't heavily marketed and full of toxic chemicals. For example, one of the things that really kind of shocked me in doing this book was that probably the most toxic place on Earth is our, our homes. Yeah. you know We have a, a lot of products like rug cleaners and spot removers and all sorts of chemicals under the sink that have skull and crossbones and who knows what else in them. But a lot of the products that we buy for our home, you know, our own mattresses in our bedrooms, for example. You know, as somebody pointed out, you think of petrochemical products going into cars and internal combustion engines and stuff. But our whole mattress is basically a petroleum-based product, et cetera. So I think it's becoming aware of the not just the problems, but the solutions, and becoming a consumer that says, "I am going to pay a little bit more." for certain things that I know to be organic or safer. Or I'm going to pay a whole lot less and create my own cleaning products. <laughs> you know, that—that
0: that is a
1: topic in itself. It Apparently is, it's you don't
0: need too many different
1: oh, four ingredients. Five, you know, we stopped, we just simply stopped buying, going down the supermarket aisle or the hardware store aisle. Uh, you'll just see all of those shelves absolutely packed with stuff that, A, is probably toxic, but B, is hugely expensive by comparison to, you know, we've been so sucked in by advertising that we think we can't clean windows without an expensive spray product when, in truth, if you buy a microfiber cloth, you can, to my astonishment, washing windows isn't one of my favorite acts, but and I try and do it as rarely as possible, but I was even amazed. I, I bought a microfiber cloth and using warm water with nothing in it, washed, washed and dried the windows. And they're absolutely, they were so clean that they, uh, they looked as if they'd disappeared. You know, you
0: mentioned microfiber cloths, which we hadn't talked about previously, mm-hmm. but I've just discovered them too. Mm-hmm. And I'm not sure why they are
1: so excellent, but they are. Do you have an idea? Well, I think they simply do. Pick up dirt, and they are absolutely much better at polishing than typical regular cloth or something. But without soap, yeah, it's amazing. I know it. It sounds like I'm sort of proselytizing for something, but not being a particularly ardent housekeeper, I must say, I was put a kind of a smile on my face when I washed the windows with. Doing this, thinking, hey, I'm saving money, but my gosh, they look. <laughs> the finished result looks fantastic. i I'll sure. tell you that one of the most interesting websites that we went to when we were doing this was to Deborah Lindad's website, and she wrote a book about non-toxic home products. She was chemically sensitive, which she discovered back in oh, probably 25 years ago. Okay. And she has a great website dld123.com. Dld123. Yeah, dot com. Dot com. And it's if you Google non-toxic household products, you, she'll probably come up pretty high on the list. And she has a great book that's been revised many times over. But give that title again, please. Her book title just called Home Safe Home: Creating a Healthy Home Environment by Reducing Exposure to Toxic Household Products. Okay. But just called Home Safe Home is. The easiest way of getting to it.
0: Well, I we will put a link to that book and to her website.
1: Yeah, I mean her website, and she has an e-newsletter that comes out every week and Q and A about any, everything under the sun that have to do that has to do with home safety and non-toxicity. It's m- amazing from swimming pools right through to water filtration systems and roofing materials. <laughs> she addresses all of the stuff: art supplies, home office supplies what's under your kitchen sink, what not to burn as candles, etc.? It's just extraordinary.
0: You know, this brings up something that really I've been thinking about as you've been talking, and that is the Internet is such a wonderful, wonderful resource. And the reason I'm saying that is that some of these messages that are so important, it is so difficult to get them
1: in the mainstream press because guess who are their advertisers? Yeah, although it's interesting, I think, Julia, to know that we actually spent about five years on this project, and it wasn't intended to be a five-year project for the cancer book. It was supposed to be like two and a half years.
0: But it just mushroomed, You know, and,
1: and Well, and part of it is that it's not trying to make it not complex, but you're really talking about a lot of complex information, yes. so, and trying to cover the waterfront and doing it in a way that's, that's fair to people and fair to products, et cetera. So it took a lot longer than we than we thought. But uh, uh, and you're absolutely right about the internet. But there's also a caution that I would suggest is that there's a lot of information on the internet that's not correct. And for example, time and time again, we will I'll get this email that people send it to me cuz they think that I should have it uh, you know from supposedly from Johns Hopkins University about don't freeze water bottles and drink from them because they leach dioxin and some of the information is just simply incorrect and it's also not from the source that's quoted and there's a <laughs> and you probably are aware of this but there are a couple of urban myth websites like Snopes.com. Snopes. <laughs> you
0: know
1: you know that <laughs> I sure and i think do. we even have to be critic sort Critical of skeptical of about those yeah. but but by the same token i think that everything is really we just need to double and triple check lots of information but there are some trusted sites and Deborah Lynn lindads is one of them And I I think, I guess the other thing, though, that becomes difficult for pretty much any consumer is just the huge, humongous amount of information that's available. But I think what's happened, though, is that the mainstream media, some of it, has has actually awakened to these uh, issues in a big way. One of the most conservative newspapers in Canada, which uh, is uh, the Globe and Mail, uh, has a, a marvelous uh, environment reporter, Martin Middlestadt. who, I mean, we basically thought, oh my gosh, you know, he's pretty much ca- covered all, in the last year and a half, covered all the issues we have in the book, or should we just uh, dump the whole project, because he's, he's onto it. But... Obviously, we think that people still should have a place where they can go to one source and try and get all this information. But I know that, for example, the Chicago Tribune does some really good articles on health and environment. So does the Los Angeles Times and the San Francisco Chronicle, certainly even the Wall Street, some of the Stuff from the Wall Street Journal on hormone disruptors was fascinating. Excellent. They they have some
0: very good people, don't they, the Wall Street Journal? Oh, for
1: sure. It's just a matter of, you know, you just need the, I I think people need to be intelligently skeptical about information and always just apply the precautionary principle, erring on the side of caution. It's the same with menstrual products. And it's also having that, it's not just a personal uh, issue, but it's a planetary issue you know yeah. we aren't we didn't talk about dioxin in tampons for example simply because of consumer exposure to them our own exposure to them we talked about it because uh, the pulp mills that were pumping out dioxin were contaminating whole ecosystems like down in the Fen Holloway River in Florida for example or in Canada out in Alberta there were pulp mills that were creating the raw materials for sanitary products that were contaminating that environment. So it's, I think we, you know, that old slogan think locally and act globally. Or excuse me, th- think globally and act locally. Right. It's still a, the way to go. And we have to be sensitive to not just the personal issues, but also the the earth issues.
0: And you mentioned by talking about a few of the writers for some of the papers
1: mm-hmm.
0: and mentioning certain newspapers, when you want to make sure of the new, that the news you get, look at who's writing it, too. Yeah, for sure. Because, for instance, you mentioned the, the Chicago Tribune, and I am from the Chicago area, and Julie Deerdorf, who is the health writer, is really up on the environmental issue. So when she writes something, I tend to trust it. Yes. But if I, you know, you still have to be critical. You can't just accept everything. But she is very, very reputable.
1: Yeah. And you also have to know that some of these organizations are what they call astroturf organizations that when they're quoted in the press, you know that they're fronts for the pharmaceutical industry or the chemical industry or whomever. I think that people need to know that. A lot of the news, sad to say, is still churned out in press releases by large corporations through yes. their public relations agencies. Well, speaking of which, they're also
0: my favorite, and that is very sardonic the way I'm saying that, but video news releases, mm-hmm. which are literally, they are, they look like actual segments of the news, video segments, and they are produced by PR agencies, the big ones, of course, for probably around, from what I've read, $20,000 a pop. Mm-hmm. And the TV stations play these. One of the organizations that you mentioned in the book, PRWatch.org. Great organization.
1: A, the, excuse me? It's a great organization. dot oh,
0: PRWatch.org. I'm going to put a link to that, too. Diane Farsetta is the gal there. She does a fantastic job of keeping abreast of who's using these VNRs, and you can actually go on their site and see these videos that are produced by the companies that, in the name of news. So, as you could tell, this is one of my little hobby horses here. Mm-hmm. But things are getting a little better. I finally, you told me something when we were talking that literally made me gasp, and that was that the Susan G. Komen Foundation has actually sponsored a study with the Silent Spring Institute that resulted in a publication, I believe, called The Environment Factors and Breast Cancer. Yes, a- and
1: it actually appeared in the Journal of the American Cancer Institute. Isn't that wonderful? Well, because, uh, well, uh, sorry, the American Cancer American Cancer The
0: it, The journal's called Cancer.
1: Yeah, and... The American Cancer Society has resisted for decades any connection between cancer and environmental toxins or even you know occupational stuff it's just it has been steadfast in its in denunciation even over time and so this collaboration actually the study was funded partly by the Susan Komen organization. And Silent Spring worked with several other organizations to do this analysis of chemicals that had caused breast cancer in ro- in rodents and animal experiments. And the fact that it was published in Cancer means, of course, that it's been peer-reviewed, etc., and accepted. You know, that's huge. Finally, there's sort of a, a breakthrough. And I think even in, I don't know how the American Cancer Society will proceed from here, but for example, the Canadian Cancer Society, they seemed like kissing cousins for such a long time that the Canadian Cancer Society would kind of look to the American Cancer Society for a, a lot of its policy, but over time, the Canadian Cancer Society has, has broken away and it's actually adopted the precautionary principle as a way of judging whether chemicals should be used in commerce or not. It took the lead in Canada in denouncing cosmetic use of pesticides in cities, for example. So when a municipal government wants to pass some kind of bylaw to stop the use of pesticides, uh, in city parks or in school grounds, et cetera, they can cite the Canadian Cancer Society as a source, and that carries weight. And and just recently, the the Cancer Society has come out in Canada with a very strong statement about occupational exposures to carcinogens. So it, it's there's finally a bit of daylight here. And that study that you talk about in cancer, I believe it was uh, released in May. That's just really good news.
0: And you asked what, or you mentioned, what are they going to do? What is the Cancer Society going to do now? Well, I'm not sure what they are, but Conan now promises to fund the development of, quote, new and innovative models for researching breast cancer and environmental risk factors.
1: That's a quote. I
0: almost fainted. <laughs> the reason well,
1: I- <laughs> it, it's it's about time. I know that Susan Coleman Foundation have been criticized in the past, there's been the whole tide of pink that we've had over time the pink ribbon stuff i mean it's just insidious and it's everywhere and it and it just masks some of the real work that needs to be done and so it's really great that there are a few of these breakthroughs occurring and I hats off to them.
0: Well, I think that it's just wonderful, and as you know, I was shocked,
1: but happily shocked. <laughs> well, we've got to, we've got to have our victories, and I and I, but I also think, and and this is something that kind of kept us going when we t- took on this project because it, it was a big project. Is what we wanted to do because people feel really discouraged about. All sorts of environmental challenges these days, certainly climate change is huge, et cetera, but also, I think people feel kind of at a loss about this whole issue of cancer and and our and i can I can get there too, but I think our goal was to say, "Look, there are some extraordinarily great things happening in places around the world sometimes." in the most unexpected places that are all for detoxifying our our very toxic environments. And, And we need to gather up this information so people feel empowered, so they'll feel like, okay, here's the situation that we want to do something about. We wanted the people to know that they're not alone that if they decide to take something on, there are probably some great examples of what's going on in Detroit, for for heaven's sake, or somewhere up north in Canada or something. There are just tons of great examples of situations that can be kind of gathered under the rubric of cancer prevention.
0: Well, I'm also wanting to tell people again the title of your book, because it is one of those life-saving life-changing, excuse me, and life-saving books. It's called Cancer 101 Solutions to a Preventable Epidemic. And I am just so happy I found out about it and that I was able to interview you and I would also like to give the name of another website that you mentioned in your book, treehugger.com, because it has a lot it's very solution oriented. And I'm going to try to get them to link to our interview because you are very solution-oriented. So uh, is there anything I've left out that you would like to discuss?
1: Well, there are all sorts of opportunities. I I think the one thing that people do need to know is cancer prevention starts even before conception. (laughs) Oh, what a great
0: point. You're right.
1: Well, it's never too late to improve one's health and lifestyle ever in life. I don't think. I think that if, I think at any age, for example, I was a smoker for many years and I didn't want to be a smoker throughout my life, so I quit in my 30s and I'm thrilled that I did that. But I think people need to know that the most vulnerable among us are it it all starts at the beginning yeah. with exposures of fetuses, but even the egg and sperm to chemicals that were unknown uh, 60, 70, 80 years ago. And if we really do want to tackle the cancer epidemic, we need to look at the whole picture right from before conception onwards. And I think that the good news is, is that oh, a huge amount can change if we just make the decision that we're going to detoxify our lives but not just our own lives, that we demand that as a society we go, we move into the new green chemistry era. We decide, like Sweden has done, that by 2020 they'll eliminate all toxic chemicals. It's possible, it's doable, but we need to speak up about it and create the political will for it to happen. And
0: I think just pointing out that doing one or two things, I remember when Simran Sethi from Tree Hugger was on the Oprah show, she challenged people to make one small change in their life that mm-hmm. would help the environment. Yep. And that was very powerful. I found that when people don't say, oh, there's
1: so much to do, I started making six, seven, and eight changes. Well, sure, and it becomes contagious once yeah. you've done one, saved a bit of money, cleaned up your house in a way that you know is non-toxic. Uh, it becomes <laughs> contagious. You just, you, you know, it's good for you and it's good for the house and it's good for the environment. Let's keep, let's keep it going. And it's not that hard. That's the no. wonderful part. That's the great part.
0: So I just want to thank you so, so much, Liz. You are such a wealth of information, and perhaps we'll do a part two. Oh, well, that would be great. Be...
1: <laughs> and I but thank you for your interest in this subject. I am glad that the Keeper is still, uh, as a product, is still going strong and going from strength to strength, and that this the, that whole issue leads to awareness about many, many more things. Well, it's, thank you. terrific.
0: Thank you, and it was more than terrific talking with you. Mm-hmm. And I'll be talking to you again soon. I'm going to try to convince you about a, a part two, which <laughs> I don't know if it will be a hard thing to convince you. <laughs> well,
1: this has been a pleasure, and thank you.
0: A pleasure for me, too. Okay. Thank you so, so much. And <laughs> okay. uh, this is Julia Shopik thanking you from Keeper.com.
1: <laughs> Thanks.
0: Bye-bye. Bye-bye.